And even though you, you do your best to not let it manifest externally, just internally, that's something you sort of wrestle with. It's like, why can't we just get this out now? But realize that some things you just have to let it, it's like a, like a slow cooker. You just gotta let it cook and it'll be done. Don't worry. And when it does, it'll be great. You are listening to the Product Builders Podcast. Each week on the show, we bring you conversations with experts and innovators building digital products. Our conversations help you gain behind the scenes insights into building some of today's most innovative companies. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more at productbuilderspodcast.com. In this episode of the Product Builders Podcast, Sean O'Shea of Majestic Apps speaks with Kevin Sakamoto of Dollar Shave Club all about e-commerce product development. This episode is brought to you by Majestic Apps. We imagine, design, and build digital products. With clients like Chevrolet, Audiomac, IBM, Barefoot, and more, you can be sure you're in good hands. Reach out to us at MajesticApps.com. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you've been working on and what your current role is. Thank you for having me on. I've been listening to a few episodes, so I'm a new fan of yours. But currently, I'm the, uh, the Senior Director of Product Management at Dollar Shave Club and overseeing the design development, our main website, dollarshaveclub.com. Currently, actively working on wrapping up our growth team. As you can imagine, a lot of companies are you know, hiring growth product managers I mean, when you see on LinkedIn. So a lot of my efforts lately has just been wrapping up that team, getting it stood up, as well as conducting a lot of A-B tests. So keeping very busy lately. I guess specifically, what do you consider growth product management? So what I'm finding is that you do need to define those things specifically, right? So for Dollar Shave Club, because we are well-established, right? We, we've been in the business for, for 10 years now. Growth to us means, means two things. You know, one, because we've moved into an omni-channel environment. So we started selling our products at Walmart in the end of 2020, Q4 2020, losing track of time here a little bit. And we've expanded, you know, to uh, our products in other retailers like Target and, and other pharmacies uh, through all of 2021. So moving into that from a subscription base to an omni-channel base, you know, has been a positive challenge for Dollar Shave Club. So growth in that respect is really about how do we attract the, the new customer who just wants to come buy some razor products and some shampoo and then come back to us in a few months, not having to subscribe. So making sure we can not only adjust our site to be less of a subscription and more of a retail base, but also changing that mindset eternally. And then on the back end, you know, we do know that we have a lot of customers who've been with us for a while. So churn is an issue for any company that has subscriptions. So the other side of the coin is for that particular growth team to sort of reduce that churn. Got it. That makes sense. Are those separate teams that are dealing with the different um, distribution methods, whether it's D2C or in retail? It's one team from a digital perspective. So we do have separate teams internally within Dollar Shave. We have our, our DDC team and then we have, have a retail team. Obviously, the mindset and skills involved are, are, are a little bit different. But as far as handling the growth aspect and the churn aspect for the website, it's just one team. Got it. That makes sense. And it seems like you've been doing this for a fair amount of other companies in your past as well that are of really similar kind of footprints. Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience? I've been extremely fortunate to have worked with, you know, companies like Zappos and Target and then, you know, now Dollar Shave Club. When I joined Zappos, this was back in 2011 now. It's been a while. I was product manager number four, I think it was. And that was, you know, responsible for all of Zappos.com. 
And that was a pretty big responsibility. So I knew pretty soon that I had to hire people smarter and stronger than me to grow the team and to grow, help sustain the growth of the company. So I spent nearly three years there, you know, working on Zappos.com and had a wonderful time. The culture, you probably heard a lot of stories about the culture. It's all true, right? Everything is all true there. And you really do become part of the Zappos family. Like in the 10 years since I've joined, we still keep in touch. We celebrate weddings and births and you know graduations and all these things. So it really was a wonderful place. And then I joined Target. So I went from hot, dry Las Vegas, Nevada to cold and snowy Minnesota. And having been born and raised in Hawaii, I never even saw snow. So I was afraid to touch it for the first time. <laughs> but there I was lead product owner for Discovery on Target.com as well as some other products and really enjoyed you know, my time there working at, at such a large scale. Like Zappos was great from an online perspective, from a social perspective, but Target had such brand love and such scale with so many stores that I really got to see a different side of e-commerce. And now here I am, you know, at, at Dollar Shave Club, which is a nice size company and moving from subscription to omnichannel that I talked about. So having a lot of fun along the way. Great. I mean, it seems like you've had a best of both worlds in terms of some smaller organizations through like Target, which is pretty massive. How is like the landscape internally? Has that been different in terms of like, I guess, how quickly you can get certain new features out or like how much pull you have for an idea or for a product? Like how, how does that generally work in terms of the, the different company sizes? Oh my gosh, we could probably spend the next hour talking about that. But with Zappos, you know, at the time, this was a few years after the Amazon acquisition, but they were still completely independent. So a lot of the, the tech stack at Zappos was homebrew. It was built from the ground up. So we had obviously much more control over our releases and our ability to push code live. So things moved a lot faster at Zappos. At Target, you can imagine it's a lot bigger entity. And the ability to push code wasn't so much of the issue. It was that sort of internal stakeholder management. That I wouldn't want to say it was a roadblock, but you understood why you had to check with the set merchandising team. You understood why you had to check with legal and the buyers for clothing or accessories and that sort of thing. So the development time wasn't all that much longer, but managing those stakeholders did extend the, the development. I, I would say the pre-development when you're coming up with sketches and wireframes and ideas, having to sort of socialize and get buy-in from all these different stakeholders was critically important. That makes sense. I can really imagine. It's definitely different when you have so many more players in the mix that help you make decisions. Getting a little deeper into your current role, how's Dollar Shave Club thinking about e-commerce in ways that other companies aren't? That's a great question because, as I mentioned earlier, we've been subscription-based for nearly 10 years of our existence. I joined a couple of years ago. So customers sort of you know, set it and forget it. They, they come to the site, they subscribe, they're very happy with that subscription. And they only really come if they want to make some changes to the delivery method or update the credit card or, or whatever. So with all of that, you can tell that the site was sort of architected in that way. Now that we're moving towards this on-demand, what we're calling on-demand and omni-channel view, the focus has, has sort of shifted. So we're trying to bring in a lot of sort of the best practices that you would currently see on existing sites. And it's not because we weren't cognizant of that. It's just a subscription model site is very different from someone coming in, you know, and buying just two bottles of shampoo. So spending a lot of last year trying to build those fundamentals from cart and checkout to even analytics, how we measure how customers sort of flow through our site. Now that we got some of the fundamentals down, there's always room for improvement. 
But we're looking now at, okay, how do we build in some of that brand love? Because Dollar Shave Club, when we first started, we're very edgy, we're very funny. And our commercials, you know, sort of took that tone. Our website, you don't see that, uh, you know, as much. But you're starting to see that just, was it last a couple of weeks ago for February 22nd? It was Deuces Day. And we celebrated that by having a pre-order for what we call the brown noise machine on our site. So it kind of does what, what you think it does when you're out in the public restroom. It sort of masks the noise. So bringing some of that fun and edginess back is something you start to see more on dollarshapeclub.com. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I still remember some of the actual commercials that you guys ran when you were first starting out. That's awesome. Do you guys do anything like special during the holidays? Is there any like, I know because you're traditionally subscription-based, does that change much? you see a spike there in terms of people gifting? I'd love to hear more about what's happening now that you're selling in retail. We don't spend a lot of effort during holiday. We sort of have the obligatory holiday bundles that are up. But we do, like you know, any other retailer, we do see an uplift. And it's been steady, steadily increasing since we got into to retail. And as far as how, I'm sorry, the other question was how things changed. How this landscape has changed with retail being intertwined as well. So from a dot-com perspective, I'll be completely honest. There was expected hesitation in terms of, okay, by going into retail, are we going to see some of our sales drop? That's natural to think that. But after, you know, looking at the data closely, we thankfully didn't, didn't see all that much of a change. So because of that, now we're starting to change our site to be more on-demand focused. And again, it's going back to those fundamentals. Just having a, a buy once or buy now type of experience wasn't available on our site a year ago. So it's having that sort of focus, but at the same time, finding that balance, because we do know that customers still like to subscribe to our stuff, has been a positive challenge for us. Got it. Have you seen, like customer-wise, are a lot of customers coming back that are subscription-based buying on demand, or is it different customers like i'd be interested to understand the 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 differences there you know thankfully our our subscribers they're very loyal and we're very happy for them and what we're finding now that we've been sort of on demand for a year is we do find those customers coming back and they might buy the product in store and they like the convenience of just ordering a razor refill on our site they may not be subscribing but they're coming back and so to us that's a good thing understood that makes sense at the end of the day i mean if they're not churning so even if they're not drivers, that's still great. Any other trends you're seeing um, that companies should be following that are in the e-commerce space? I definitely think it's a trend, but also a challenge, right? Is that personalization. I gave a talk recently. I was on a panel interview with Microsoft, and we we're both talking about the same thing, how the current landscape with data privacy and cookie tracking and all of these things, right, has made it much more difficult for advertisers, for companies, for podcasts, and anyone to target customers. But we also know that customers want that kind of personalization when they come to our site. Unless you're Amazon, where our customers come multiple times a month or even a week, getting that level of personalization is hard. I'm starting to see some of that coming up on the e-commerce space. It's something that we're obviously looking into, but also, too, it's, it's difficult to manage, right, with all of these new changes in customer tracking and, and privacy. So what we're trying to do is leverage content. We have some amazing content that a lot of people don't know about. Like a good example is with masks and glasses. Glasses tend to fog up with masks. But if you put shaving cream on your glasses before you put on your mask, then it reduces the fog from happening in your butt. 
not a lot of people know that, right? So, it, but we have that content available on our site. Some of it is quirky, some of it is fun, but some of it is useful. So what we're looking at next is how do we start to weave some of the content into our site? I wish I knew that trick 18 months ago. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's good to know. That makes sense. I, didn't, like, I wasn't even thinking of the data privacy angle. I mean, it's coming into play with like GDPR, CCPA um, and whatnot. So that's really uh, important. You kind of tapped on it with content. But any like, how does social come into play in like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, et cetera? Like, what are your thoughts there? It's funny you should ask that because I'm very proud of the fact that my team and I built Target's social commerce platform, Target Finds, pretty much from scratch. And it wasn't until just a couple of years ago, I just signed on to Instagram. I think my wife just signed me up for Instagram. I was never even on it when I built my team and I built this thing. But I do find that still, even though Instagram is almost a veteran, if you will, right, when you have new sites like TikTok and things coming up, that level of engagement still exists. And there's a big opportunity for brands to take advantage of that. And having built target finds, I found that to be especially true. When customers post a picture on Instagram and it's hashtag target style, target would reach out to say, hey, you know, could we use your photo on our website? And most of the times the customers would be elated to have their photo be available on target's website. So we did so and then we started having those pictures up on a dedicated site, not part of the target platform. And in doing so, we found massive participation, massive engagement. And with, you know, any good product team and any good product manager, you know, what you want to do is it's just get very intimate with the data. And as we started to get a lot of those images coming in, I realized that there was uh, some clear categories, you know, being developed around home, apparel, furniture, and, and that sort of thing. So that we then created an experience you could automatically filter by, you know, those specific categories. And I say all this to make mention of the fact that service is actually still live today. When we built it, this was around 2013, 2014. And Target is still using that today. And I'm very happy to see that being used. And the customers are still engaging. And I was actually just looking at this earlier this week. And there's this welcome mat that says home sweet home that has been in the photo stream since 2014. Right, So customers are still buying this mat and you would think that's seven years ago seven eight years ago now but it's great data also for you know target to say that while well, customers are still taking pictures of this so we should probably still order it and there's a lot of opportunities to further mine that data and to again further provide customization opportunities and monetization opportunities for target as well wow that's awesome that it's I didn't realize it was that old. So it's pretty good. Uh, it shows that what you guys built is working. And uh, if, it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it and keep iterating. I guess any other like interesting user-generated content, like examples like that, that you've seen that other companies doing or that you've done in the past that work really well like that? I've actually started following ran randomly. I don't follow any, any one person in particular, but Amazon Live Shopping. I do just enjoy logging in and seeing what people are, are selling. But again, you know, this is old hat for Asia, right? They've been doing this for a long time, so, but it's only now coming to the States. And so I'm having a lot of fun, you know, taking a look at that, seeing what the engagement is. And, you know, if, if you're to sort of push things out a little bit, you can see how these are, are sort of becoming little celebrities of their own. And, you know, when you have, and I can't remember who the, the gamer is, like when you have Twitch gaming, and I think uh, YouTube stole somebody from Twitch gaming and it was like this huge deal and, and they got multi-millions of dollars, right? 
you can almost see that happening on sort of this live shopping space where these celebrities are coming up within Amazon and now TikTok may want to have live shopping or Instagram already has some version of that, right? And then you can sort of see this. It's almost like professional sports. How do we recruit someone from one team to the other? And hopefully, you know, their fans, you know, will, will follow. So that's something I'm, I'm starting to watch closely. Got it. That makes sense. What are your thoughts on like a lot of the the large social, like someone who has 50K, 100K plus followers that are doing a lot of these being influencers and like displaying product, like if you found that that helps at all in terms of driving more traffic and just getting more exposure to certain demographics or users? I do. And again, this is something that I just sort of casually right, follow. But absolutely, I think from a customer engagement side or from a fan engagement side, that's invaluable to know that you have 50,000 customers on a weekly or monthly basis just logging in to, to watch your stuff. There's this one tech journalist who actually is an influencer on Instagram, Lamar Wilson, who I watch regularly. And, and he's now known as sort of the CEO unboxing. He just unboxes anything, you know, related to tech, right? And it's these short videos, but it's, it's just fun, you know, to watch him unbox. So one, there's that brand perspective, but he's unboxing a whole bunch of things, right? Stuff that I never would even thought about. So then from a consumer's perspective, you're getting a lot of exposure to these products. Now he's a gamer and he likes to focus on things that, you know, Microsoft sends him or Nintendo sends him and that sort of thing. But he also unboxes all kinds of other random things. So I definitely think there's, there's something there. And for influencers like that, I think it might be hard for like a company to sort of sponsor him because he's unboxing so many different things. But you can almost see this as like an actor, you know, like how actors have agents and they, they represent it with companies. You can almost see these conglomerates sort of forming around these influencers. Definitely understand that. It kind of gets me thinking about uh, the Sprint guy a little bit where he's almost like the face of Sprint or was. And now I think he hopped to, I think it's T-Mobile or Verizon. I can't remember, but I know he's went to another cellular company. If you had to go backwards in time, what would you give your kind of younger self in terms of like advice? like in the product landscape, whether it's e-commerce or just product management in general? If I could go back last week, I would tell myself something different. <laughs> um, I would say sort of all things in time as exciting. I know there are some things like I did at Zappos and I did, did at Target that I was really pushing for, that I wanted to get out the door faster and I was really excited about. But sometimes, and especially as you work at larger organizations, things just do take time. No matter how fast you want to push, there are people that you need to talk to. There are stakeholders you need to get involved. And even though that may not manifest externally, like product managers are good at compartmentalizing things. And even though you, you do your best to not let it manifest externally, just internally, that's something you sort of wrestle with. It's like, why can't we just get this out now? But realize that some things you just have to let it. It's like a, like a slow cooker. You just got to let it cook and it'll be done. Don't worry. And when it does, it'll be great. I'm just that, that resonates with me. Especially when working on like with companies small to large, there's definitely different turnaround times depending on what is being worked on. Um, so understand there for sure. I guess anything else you want to discuss in terms of just like any product thing, like specific product things that you want to kind of bring up that relates to what we've been talking about? I'm fascinated by, and I would love to get your thoughts on this too, given the company you run and everything. Just the philosophy of, of product management. I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts on building a product and any sort of philosophies you live by. Definitely. I'm traditionally more on the technical side of the product, but I always like to look at it and try to figure out like reverse engineer, like how did company ABC do that? And how can we 
replicate what they're doing in some way to make whether we're we're doing something similar or in the same industry. How are they doing that? What are they doing good? What are they not doing well in terms of whether it's how it was built or the UX of it or the design? How can we take something that's working and make it better? So I always look at it from that angle. And I think a lot of that's doing a lot of upfront strategy there. So like competitor analysis, comparative analysis, looking at features that are similar whether it's in the same industry or different industry and figure out how we can make this work. And then I always love the implementation side. So like it always goes into the build versus buy type mentality and uh, conversation where if we're trying to implement a feature, should we build this? Should we buy it? What's going to be the most efficient long-term? Who's going to be maintaining it? Things of that nature we got to always think about. So there's, there's, there's a lot of different areas I just touched on, but there's a lot of different different things that you have to think about. So. I would say that's really where my head goes whenever it talks about a product. That's great. I think it's complementary to my style. I've been accused, uh, rightfully so, in the past of not putting enough detail in my Jira tickets. Like a lot of times I'll just have like one liners or I remember a lot of times at Zappos, I would just turn around, talk to my developer, say, hey, what if we did this? And I drew it on a post-it. It's like, yeah, we can do it. It's like, okay, I'll create a placeholder ticket. And I said, you know, per post-it, like let's build this kind of thing. And I'm less about implementation. To me, that's the least fun part about it. I would leave that to the engineering leads to make that magic happen. And I'm more about curiosity. I always you know, challenge my product team to bring me something that's not in e-commerce or not in shaving. Bring me something from entertainment, you know, from social media site or travel or whatever. Bring me that and let's see how we could make that product or service into something that we can use, use on our site. And then some of one of my product managers, he writes these beautiful like requirements documents. I was like, oh my God, I could never even, I wouldn't have the patience you know, to, to do that. So it's interesting to hear our different approaches. I'm like you though, when it comes to writing specs, um, I'm not as detailed as it should be sometimes. And a lot of it's just like, I don't love doing it either, but it, it's kind of, you have to do it to get it, everything done right. Unless you can turn around and tap someone on the shoulder. That actually brings up a good point. How has COVID affected what you guys have been doing in terms of working now that you can't tap somebody on the shoulder in some cases or what you weren't able to if you're back in the office now? What was that like for, I guess, working wise as well as like for how you guys were selling? Working wise, it's been interesting because I actually onboarded completely remotely. So I haven't met my team in person and I that to be not as challenging as I thought. And I think a lot has to do with the, the culture Dollar Shave Club. It's the closest I, I've been, I've seen since, since Zappos in terms of living off of core values and building things together. If there's any one takeaway from all of this, and especially as we go hybrid, you know, now is keeping that culture in mind and people are in different stages in their life. There's a lot of things going on in the world and being as accommodating, let's not forget, you know, how accommodating we were before as we go back into this hybrid mode. And that accommodation goes into how we operate internally as a team as well. So what I found lately to work is carving out time for the product team to just be available for each other. You don't have to, you know, jump on the, the, the Zoom call, but just everybody block out so many hours in the morning so that if you do need to tap somebody on the shoulder or quotes, you just slack them and you jump into a huddle. And if everybody knows that the hours of 9 to 12 is protected product time for people to just tap someone on the shoulder, no other meetings, 
just dedicated, focused product time, I'm actually finding that to, to work out pretty well. Wow, that's great. It makes a lot of sense where you guys can just set that time aside. It's pretty key to, I mean, keep your, keep your guys out of meetings all day, which I've seen some companies kind of fall into during this time just because you can't tap somebody on the shoulder, but finding a way to do it where it's a bit more productive is great. I would say from my end, uh, it's been definitely uh, a bit of a change. A lot of our developers have been remote, like always, so it's not too much of a, a shift there. But in terms of like collaboration between like UX, UI, and like the designers and strategy, that's definitely, it was new, but at this point, everybody really like has embraced working remote. I think a lot of the tooling has changed where like Slack, you said huddles, uh, you have Figma and whatnot, where you can all be in the same file and working remotely and see each other's like cursor, where traditionally in the past, you didn't even have some of these tools, like when everybody's using like Photoshop and whatnot and Adobe suite. But some of these newer tools are more robust where you can do a lot of these things. So I think it's just, we've kind of fast forwarded, in my opinion, what was coming anyway, in terms of this remote slash hybrid workforce and culture. But the other point you brought up was the actual culture itself. And I think that's key where some companies really did a great job at keeping their in-office culture like virtually. It's hard to do. And I think the companies that were able to pull it off, all hats off to them. Definitely agree. And it's even sort of little things. I, I love to hear any sort of tactics or tips you have. Like for us, one of the things we're proud of internally is we have tacos in Slack, and then we just have a channel for tacos. And if someone does good, and we just do at Sean, you know, taco, thanks for your help on this build. And then at every month when we have our all hands, we say, okay, who got the most tacos and who gave out the most and who received it? And then they get a DoorDash gift cards. These small things that just add a little bit of joy to the day helps out a lot. So I don't know, do you folks do anything like that? Yeah, that's awesome. A bit funnier than ours, we do something similar where it's just a kudos channel where you just pick somebody specific that or a group of a team maybe that's working on something just give them kudos and that was actually today on, on uh, friday one other, other thing that we did in office and we've just kept it was what we call show and tells this is where really any team is invited and it's really just to share any link or any technology even like some people share movies like youtube videos whatever whatever it is and you can share it and just talk about what it is. And it, it kind of opens up like the product people get to see really heavy tech things from the engineering team um, and then vice versa. So it opens everyone's eyes to different things and gets everybody thinking about, hey, that's what we could do. But if we like, if we have a like actual feature that could work that way. But it really, I think the biggest thing it opens eyes and connects the team still that or the members that are not working with each other day to day. I'm going to have to borrow that show and tell from you. Take it. Um, it worked well and we've been doing it for years prior and um, we just kept it going. And it's kind of like a end of the day relaxing like thing for the team where we do it on like generally like Thursday, Friday. So it's more like a wind down and an early finish for the team. Nice. That's great. It was really great talking with you, Kevin. I guess where else can we find out more about your work and what you're doing on for uh, Dollar Shape Club? Yeah, it's best to find me on LinkedIn. Love to just read posts on LinkedIn. I, I do post every now and then. Although I, I was off for about a month. I went back to school last fall. I'm getting my doctorate degree from Pepperdine University. So 
the past few weeks have been pretty busy, so I was off of LinkedIn for a bit, <laughs> but that's where you can find me. Reach out anytime. I love to learn from other people. Great. Well, we'll definitely take a look. And uh, well, Kevin, thank you for coming on Majestic's Product Builders podcast. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. This episode is brought to you by Majestic Apps. We imagine, design, and build digital products. Ready to create something amazing? Contact us at MajesticApps.com.